This is Democracy. A podcast about the people of the United States. A podcast about citizenship. About engaging with politics and the world around you. A podcast about educating yourself on today's important issues. And how to have a voice in what happens next. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. This week, we are going to discuss the history of unions in the United States, and we're going to look at the current strike by auto workers uh, in the United States. Uh, these are auto workers who belong to one of the oldest and most important unions, uh, but one of many unions in the history of the United States, the United Auto Workers. And we are fortunate to be joined by one of the leading historians of workers, unions, and race in the United States. Uh, this is our friend, uh, Professor William Jones who is a professor of history at the University of Minnesota. He's the author of uh, many articles and two really important books. Uh, the first, The Tribe of Black Ulysses, African-American Lumber Workers in the Jim Crow South. And then uh, more recently, uh, The March on Washington, Jobs, Freedom, and the Forgotten History of Civil Rights, uh, a book that puts the March on Washington, which everyone has heard of, uh, especially because of Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, Will's book puts the March on Washington in the context of labor history, as well as civil rights history, which is uh, really important. Um, Will, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. And of course, we have our scene-setting poem from Mr. Zachary Suri. Uh, Zachary, what's the title of your poem today? From the UAW Picket Lot. Wow, we're going to get uh, an on-the-scenes account from you, Zachary? Or at least an imagining of one, yes. <laughs> okay, well, let's hear it. So here we are waiting on the picket line for the world to change, for the times to rhyme. They sold us the lie that if we just worked hard, the dough would fry and line our pockets with bread. Pretty soon we were left, the only ones not, caught up in the net or dead on a cot. They told us when we asked that they had nothing to say, forget tomorrow, clock out today. But we will not be told that our futures were sold in Washington or in Detroit where the rivers fold and wash our cars out to sea. We will not be told to keep standing still when the steels arrive from the mill and we have the parts to rebuild the heart of what made this country go. We will not be told to accept our fate, to wait and say nothing forever, if anything yet, we're far too late, but better too late than never. Hmm. What's your poem about, Zachary? My poem is really about um, how uh, the ravages of the global economy in the past few years have 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 hit at the heart of of manufacturing jobs in the United States and and have led to a lot of dissatisfaction um, with not just with government but also with 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 big corporations uh, in in Detroit and, and across the country um, and how labor uh, action uh, can hopefully uh, move towards uh, solving those problems yeah. or at least uh, finding yeah. a better solution for yeah. for workers and and that's your point about late but 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 still important right exactly will um this moment we're living in now that zachary captures i think a bit in his in his poem um it, it, is that how you would frame the current labor action in in against the the auto work automakers is that really what it is is it about automation or what's what's really at the root of this yeah i mean i think that there's there's a number of things in, involved and 
Yeah, automation is an important part of it. And the struggle over jobs and the sort of number of jobs and uh, employment. Um, I, I think there's really three main issues at at the heart of this this current strike. Um, one is the uh, the the issue of uh, of the two tier employment system uh, that most of that the big three auto workers have adopted, which is a is a product of concessions that were made by the UAW. Uh, during the um, the recession in 2009, um, when the auto companies were really in bad shape, uh, and the UAW agreed to allow them to essentially start hiring workers, uh, new workers under different systems, under lower wages, uh, less uh, in some cases no uh, benefits, healthcare benefits, pensions, um, and the the idea was that you know when the auto worker when the auto companies were in bad shape and needed some help in recovering, the UAW, the workers agreed to take these concessions. Um, but now the, the big three are doing very well. Um, and the, the feeling is that they, you know, the workers should not consider, continue to take these concessions. Um, some of the issues are around wages. And I think the union has framed that in uh, the broader context of, uh, I think, a conversation we've been having over the past several decades about rising levels of economic inequality, um, the ways in which the wealthy have done well at times when uh, the less wealthy, when the 99% has, um, has seen their, uh, their living standards and their income decline. Um, and then the third one, I think, is this issue of jobs. It's, it's related in part to automation. It's also um, for the auto industry, particularly related to the transition to electric vehicles, which um, you know are are easier to manufacture, and so they require less labor. And there's a concern about the ways in which uh, the auto, that 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 shift to a, a you know a lower labor demand is going to affect the current workers, and, right. and they're concerned about that. Well, that's really helpful in framing this, and and I wanted to come back to your first uh, point because I think that's one that, at least to my reading of the news, has received a lot less attention. The fact that the auto workers not only um, gave up certain benefits to help the automobile companies during the two thousand eight recession, but also that they actually agreed to create a two tiered system. Can you just say more about that? How that's worked, and and what the expectations were when that was negotiated in two thousand eight? Right. Well, I mean, the the expectations were that this was going to save a, a an industry that was really on the brink of collapse, and so that you know, which you know, in a sense, it, it that has happened. Um, the the way it works though is that you get um you know something that you hear a lot in interviews with workers on the picket lines is they'll say you know like they're standing next to workers who do the same jobs under the same conditions as them who earn you know some in some cases half of what they earn wow. um with no benefits and wow so they you know there's a sort of a fundamental sense that this is unfair but there's also a, a recognition that this is a really uh, a dangerous situation when you're trying to build solidarity between workers and it sort of pits workers against each other um, and has the potential to really divide the workforce in a way that the, um, I think this strike is aimed at, you know, overcoming and, 
Well, and and that point, Will, it seems to me, leads really to the the bigger historical question, which is what role have unions played? Why does the UAW exist? I get this question from my students all the time. Uh, Maybe that's just a function of those students being in Texas. I don't know. But but what what you're describing seems to me to actually be an anathema to what unions historically have been about. Is that correct? Yeah, I think in some respects, it's certainly anathema to the history of the UAW. And, you know, just as an aside, um, my students here in Minnesota, where there's a very vibrant labor union, um, they personally often have very little contact with the labor movement. And so, you know, I'm sure that it's more intense in Texas, but across the United States, people have very little um, sense of what unions do and where they come from. The the UAW, is, you know, comes from a particular history of, it's one of the industrial unions of the 1930s. It was one of the founding unions of the Congress of Industrial Organizations, which is, you know, half of the AFL-CIO. The other half, the AFL, is much older. And it actually comes from a tradition that is in some ways based on drawing lines among workers or between workers. I mean, it was a sort of built by skilled workers who really kind of circled the wagons around their own particular skills. Um, and we're very exclusive. So many of the AFL unions, you know, they would limit their membership to men. They would, some of them actually explicitly said that you could not be a member of them unless you were white. Um, so they were exclusive. And the idea was to try to draw a very narrow line and control the labor market and the access to skills within a particular labor market. The CIO unions, like the UAW, took exactly the opposite approach. They felt if we can organize as many people as possible across as many different lines of skill and um, status, uh, across lines of race and gender, we can be more powerful if we have everybody in the same union. Um, And so that's really, the UAW really exemplifies that history. It emerged in the 1930s um, organizing auto plants, which were really deeply divided, right? You had very, very highly skilled machinists uh, working alongside, you know, janitors, alongside uh, people who were who had very few, little experience. Um, you had, you know, people of many different, uh, you know, immigrants from all over the world, uh, people of different races, men and women working in the same factories. And the UAW was one of the first unions to say, we're going to try to put everybody in the same union. Um, so this idea of the concessions really cuts at the heart of that idea. Um, of the two-tier system um, and and gets really to the heart of the history of the UAW. Zachary? And what has been the, the recent history of industrial unions in the United States? Um, how, how has, how, what, what, where, where in the sort of long history of American labor uh, do you see this, um, this particular strike uh, fitting? Yeah, well, I mean, So since the 1970s, we've seen a really dramatic uh, change in the way in which labor laws have been enforced. Uh, We've seen a weakening of the enforcement mechanisms. Uh, We've seen a sort of emboldening of um, employers uh, to to really ignore the the labor laws, which are in some ways sort of inherently weak as there aren't very many enforcement mechanisms, sort of serious enforcement mechanisms in them. Um, 
At the same time, we've seen a decline in the number of workers who are employed in the core industries in the United States, partially due to automation, partially due to the globalization of manufacturing, uh, the rise of the service economy. Um, and the auto industry has been, you know, at the core of that, right? They've been, we've seen declining numbers of people. It's not so much that the, you know, that cars use fewer workers. It's that a lot of the parts that are used in cars are manufactured overseas. So increasingly auto plants in the U.S. are really assembly plants. They're, you know, taking things from all over the world uh, and putting them, them together into a finished product. And that takes fewer workers than if you have to make those products. Uh, from scratch. Um, and that has really challenged uh, unions like the the, audit, the UAW. Um, they've responded in a number of ways. One way they've done responded is to sort of branch out and organize other workers. I think about 20% of the UAW are actually academic workers. They're graduate students, they're uh, contingent faculty, uh, at um, mostly in the in the UC, the University of California system. Um, They've also made the, you know, they face this problem of, you know, do you sort of make concessions and do you, you know, recognize that you are in a, a place of weakened, you know, clout and respond to that by making concessions? Um, or do you do, in his, you know, in the language of the sort of the people who run the union movement now or the UAW now, do you fight back? Um, and one of the important things about this strike is it occurs uh, after the election of Sean Fain, who's, who ran against a sort of entrenched union bureaucracy that had really been responsible for a lot of these concessions. Uh, he ran on a reform slate um, that was supported by people um, who have been fighting within the UAW for many years, for decades, uh, to try to push the union toward a more aggressive stance and trying to push back against some of these concessions. Um, so that's a strategic change that, you know, and I think we'll see how it plays out. I mm. think the strike, um, mm. you know, raises that. We don't know how the strike's going to end. Will, uh, your your discussion of the election of a new UAW leader brings up an important uh, issue. I often hear people say very derogatory things about unions. Um, and I think some of this comes out of the rhetoric of the 1970s and 80s, that unions are corrupt and that unions are run only for the leadership. Um, that's obviously not true. Uh, but w why do you think that's said so often? And what's your response to that? Well, I mean, it's said, it is in part true. I mean, there's a, there is a truth to the to the fact that there has been corruption in unions. I think like any large institution, there's room for corruption. Um, I think it also has gained strength from uh, the, the, the position that these big industrial unions have found themselves in, where they, it's been very difficult for them to actually deliver for their members. So there's this, you know, a sense that they don't get much done. You know, they've done an important, they've played important roles in, in at least holding the ground. Um, but I think, you know, that's something that's very hard for people to see. And so there's a sort of yes. sense that these are these are institutions that are on their back and it's hard to um, to sell them even to their own uh, members. Um, on the other hand, I think it's important to keep in mind that unions have really been central to um, any advances that we've had toward um, economic equality in the United States and in other respects in terms of other forms of equality. 
Um, so, you know, the, the, the UAW came out of the 1930s, but it really, I think, played its central role in the United States in po po U.S. politics in the 1950s and 60s, the sort of heyday, what some historians call the heyday of American liberalism. It was the UAW that pushed for um, universal for um, for healthcare programs for workers for to provide health that employers this sort of employer based uh, system that we now have. The UAW actually initially pushed for a universal healthcare program when the auto companies pushed back vehemently against that. The UAW said, well, okay, then employers need to set a step up and provide health care uh, for workers. Um, they push for, you know, all of the sort of liberal provisions of what we might call the welfare state of the 1950s um, was pushed for by industrial unions like the UAW. Um, the UAW also played a really critical role in the civil rights movement. It was um, one of the, the unions that, you know, provided uh, consistent funding for the major campaigns of the 1950s and 1960s. The UAW sent money to help support uh, the Montgomery bus boycott. They play, They sent um, hundreds of thousands of dollars to support the March on Washington. Uh, the president of the UAW, uh, Walter Ruther, spoke at the March on Washington, you know, just before Martin Luther King gave his I Have a Dream speech. Um, so this, these are institutions that have really been vital to American democracy and to the the sense of sort of creating a more egalitarian United yeah. States. Yeah. I'm so glad you you explained that, uh, Will, because uh, it, it is striking and I think undeniable that moments in our history when unions have been stronger, we have seen less economic inequality in moments uh, such as the 1970s and 80s when we see unions receding in American history, we, we see more inequality. So there's at least a correlation there, as my economist friends would say. <laughs> that's, that's right. I mean, if you one, one chart that I like to show my students is if you chart uh, the level of income inequality in the United States over the past decade or the past century, uh, and you chart union representation rates, they're in exact reverse correlation, right? That as unions have declined, we've seen um, wealth inequality grow. Will, do you think that's why it appears that there is at least some kind of renaissance of unions in the United States? You see Starbucks wor workers, Amazon workers, and various others talking about unions in ways we, we hadn't seen before. Is, is that part of the story? I think it is. I mean, one of the really remarkable things that we've seen in the Gallup polls is that, um, so in 2010, the Gallup poll, you know, the Gallup poll every year since the 40s has asked people whether they think unions are good or bad sort of a basic public, you know, opinion poll of, of unions. Um, in 2010, that number reached its all-time low. It was, it actually, for the first time uh, since they started asking, it it dipped below 50%. Wow. Um, in last year, that number reached 70, 70 over 75%. Um, and so in the, you know, since 2010, we've seen the, that public approval of unions go from its historic low to close to an all-time high. And I think, you know, there's a number of reasons for that. I think, you know, there has been growing attention to uh, income inequality. You know, 2010 was around the time that we saw the emergence of the Occupy Wall Street movement. There was this sort of conversation around 
uh, wealth inequality. There were the big protests in Madison, Wisconsin that you and I both witnessed. I think yes. they called attention to the historic importance of unions uh, in a way that we haven't seen in a very long time. Um, since then, I think we've seen, certainly during the pandemic, um, I think there were a number of ways in which the pandemic contributed to this growth of unions. One was the sort of outward display of workers who were really, you know, were essential, were critical for the functioning of our society, critical to protecting people from the pandemic and caring for people when they got the pandemic. Those workers were often the lowest paid, the worst treated workers in yes. the economy. Yes. And that highlighted this contradiction, I think. Um, it led to a lot of those workers um, going on strike and forming unions. Um, I think the, the third thing that I'd point to is actually this reform movement within the union movement um, that you know really goes back to the 1970s, um, but that people have been working within the unions to, um, to make them both, you know, to sort of root out corruption, but also to make them more aggressive and to sort of take on some of these concessions. And that I think we're seeing, you know, all of the, the leadership of many of the big unions and of the AFL-CIO comes out of these reform movements that started back in the 1970s. So I think we're in some ways seeing the results of those. In, in recent weeks, we've seen um, both the current president of the United States uh, and his uh, predecessor visit uh, UAW picket lines, or at least uh, speak with UAW strikers. How should we understand the role that, that this strike uh, will play and, and is playing in our national politics so close to, to a presidential election? Yeah, that, that, that was really fascinating, I thought, um, you know, in, in both cases. I mean, I think it's important to point out that, um, that Donald Trump did not go to a UAW uh, plant. He went to a non-union plant. He was also invited by the employers who were who are sort of a vehemently anti-union uh, parts manufacturer. So I think that's important to keep in mind. Biden, on the other hand, was invited by the president of the UAW um, and spoke very powerfully for the first time in history. Uh, a union, a, a sitting president, really took a very strong position. Uh, in favor of the union, and I think really, you know, framed its his remarks in the in the tone that the union is saying that this is about wealth inequality, that the CEOs of the auto manufacturers have done very well, and the workers deserve to do well also. Um, and you know, I think that that signaled that this conversation is going to be is clearly going to be a really important part of the coming election. Um, and I think for a first time in a very long time, we've seen, you know, the politics of unionization um, and of wealth inequality really being at the heart of um, the conversation leading into uh, this presidential election. Will, there's a lot um, of talk, and, and, and you've been part of this discussion, too, about working class voters um, from you know the period of Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt's presidency forward. There was a presumption in part because of the connections between the Democratic Party and some of the major unions that working class voters would be Democratic voters. Then the Trump movement seems to have reversed that, at least in some areas, perhaps particularly in the Midwest. How do you see that issue today? Are, are working class voters MAGA voters? Are they Trump voters? Are they Democratic voters? What, what would you say? Yeah, 
I, I mean, I think it's important to keep in mind who, you know, what, what we mean when we say working class voters. I mean, there's a very, I think a very small sort of narrow segment of working class voters who are overwhelmingly white and male. Um, they're largely rural, uh, who have, you know, who are, have become Trump, Trump voters. Um, many of those voters have been conservative voters for a very long time. I mean, they were, um, you know, going back to Reagan, even going back to before that to Nixon. Um, the working class is extremely diverse and, um, and the working class as a whole still, um, is decidedly Democrat. Um, but if you, if you look at a particular, you know, segments of workers, I thought it was actually interesting that, you know, Trump, um, spoke, gave his speech when he went to Detroit in Macomb County, uh, which is the sort of classic place where, um, the sort of origin of the term Reagan Democrats, the, the hmm. sort of long-term Democrats who had turned uh, to the Republican Party with the, um, in 1980 to vote for Reagan. Um, so I think, you know, I think Trump's politics are often sort of framed in the context of the 1980s. Right. And he seems sort of stuck back there. But I think he, that was definitely part of his uh, thinking and going. Is, is it fair to say that the white male elements of the working class that we associate also with traditional unionism, the traditional people working in Henry Ford's plants and others, um, is, is that a smaller and smaller part of what you'd call the working class today? Well, in some respects, it's always been a small part of the working class. They've been the working class that has been most visible. I see. Um, but certainly, I mean, in like, if you look at core industrial jobs, I mean, if you look at the pic the pictures of UAW picket lines, you know, they look very different. It's lots of women, um, and and lots of of, of black and Latino men. Uh, so, in that sense, the sort of core sort of UAW, um, which has always been a racially diverse union, right? But um, it's become its sort of core constituency has become more racially and gender diverse, certainly gender diverse. Right, that makes sense. So, so will we always like to close our episodes by bringing together the the uh, enormous reservoir of information and knowledge that guests like you are, are, are sharing with us, and we're fortunate to be able to participate in that and to benefit from your knowledge. We like to bring together this historical knowledge with uh, a forward looking perspective uh, based on on this really deep and complex history of unions and workers in the United States that you have such a strong command of what would you say to a president Biden or it could be to a Republican presidential candidate what would you say to them about how one could be both pro-worker and pro-growth. It, it seems too often we see these as dichotomous positions in our history, that you have to either be for growth or for unions. Of course, many periods of economic growth have been periods of union growth and union prosperity in our society as well. So, so how can we bring those two together looking forward today? Yeah. I mean, as you said, I, I would point to history. I mean, if you look at the post-war period when the UAW was at its, at its most powerful that was also the point in which the U.S. economy was growing more rapidly than it ever has uh, before or since. And so I think that, you know, again, it's correlation, um, but, I, but the, it raises the question as to whether there is a fundamental sort of tension between uh, growth and, uh, and, you know, better wages, better working conditions, sort of a more prosperous working class. Um, I think also I'd point to, you know, a lot of that conversation goes around the sort of sense that 
sort of better wages for auto workers is going to be damaging for uh, consumers, right? That like if we raise wages for auto workers, you know, it's going to raise the cost of a car. Um, we hear this in a lot, you know, if we raise, if we pay fast food workers too much, it's going to, you know, shut people out of McDonald's, right? That we won't. And I think it's important to keep in mind that in each of those cases, the actual cost of labor is just a fraction of the cost of making any product. Um, I think the the cost of labor, the labor cost for making a car is, uh, is around 10 to 15% of the total cost. So there's a lot of other factors going into that. Um, it has to do with, you know, getting products from overseas and trade policies that affect that. Um, it has to do with with the compensation that goes to management, and also, more importantly, the compensation that goes to shareholders and uh, out in profit. And I think it's important to you know to keep in mind that those all mean that we can actually, uh, in many cases, it's uh, beneficial for the broader economy to make sure that people have better wages. It stimulates uh, consumption, uh, and that there's certainly not a contradiction between increasing conditions for improving conditions for workers and promoting a right. prosperous economy. Right. Uh, Zachary, you, you spent the summer in Germany, and of course, Germany's a, a country with very strong unions. Um, do you agree with Will that, that Germany's an example of, of economic growth and worker protections going hand in hand? I think so. And and I think one thing about this moment that, that maybe um, – is, is a little optimistic, is that it, I think the attention from both parties to the issue of economic equality, albeit from two different perspectives, and, and one often much more about cultural resentment than actual economic policy, I think that that, that, that should be a positive sign that, that, that most Americans or, or a large number of Americans recognize that the future of our economy is not going to be in the same places and organizations that we've relied on in the last decade or so, that we have to look back to the past, but also look forward to find new ways of, of, of thinking about uh, wealth distribution and, and, and economic prosperity in our and, and Zachary, for, for young uh, observers like yourself, are unions part of that story? Are, do you feel that your generation is giving more attention to unions than maybe the, the generation just before yours? I think so, and I think quite simply, it's it's one of the, the the places in American politics that is that is most exciting, but also most accessible. I think it's 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 a uh, it's it's a it's a engaging, exciting uh, political movement as much as it is a very serious uh, critique of our economy. Yeah. So, Will, that was the last question, the really last question I had for you, which was for our listeners, particularly our younger listeners, um, if they're interested in learning more about unions as scholars and perhaps as activists, uh, what are the best ways to get involved and to become knowledgeable of this subject matter? Yeah, well, um, I, I think you can, I'll, I'll do a plug for taking labor history classes. <laughs> sign up for my class. <laughs> go, to, go to Minneapolis and sign up for Will's class. <laughs> right. Well, you, you don't have to come here. You can, there, in most universities, there are classes, you know, related to labor history and labor studies um, more broadly. Um, I do think that, you know, Zachary's right in terms of the accessibility. I mean, in a lot of cases, young people, you know, learn about unions because they go to pl- work in a place where there's a union drive and you know i've been re- i've been a, there's a starbucks down the s- street from my house and i've had a great time talking to people who are trying to build a union there um and they're you know they're all in their 20s um and they have you know they haven't been involved in unions before but they're learning a lot about unions 
students and they're really interested in it. So that's a way that I think, you know, whether you work in a place like that or you, you know, you, you, you go to a business like Starbucks, I think you can talk to the people who work there about their experiences. Um, and, you know, I think depending on where you live, it, there are a lot of union members who, you know, are not, it's not, you know, they don't wear their UAW hat everywhere, um, but they're, you know, they're around and they, um, they, they have experience with unions. So those are other ways you can learn about it. It's, it's such a great point. Um, e- even in a, a state like Texas, which traditionally doesn't have the same strong unionization as other parts of the country, um, teachers are part right. of a union, right? right. Uh, what I know your, your next project is on, Will, uh, public service workers, right? right. Uh, 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 my wife, who's a city council member, she's actually part of AFSCME, which is the public public sector union. And so there are actually a lot of people around who work with or involved with unions. And, and as, as you say, Will, I think that talking to them and getting a sense, positive and negative, of what their experience is, is important in informing ourselves when we're discussing these issues politically. <laughs> Yeah, I mean it's true that, you know, if you're if you're in high school, the chances are your teacher is a union member. Right. Right. Well, Will, thank you so much for sharing this excursion, uh, a necessary excursion today into the history of unions and workers in American society. There's obviously much more you could say. You could fill, I think, 500 podcast episodes on this, but you've given us really a, a wonderful introduction to the topic, and I hope our listeners will, will dig in for more. So uh, thank you, P- Professor Will Jones, for joining us today. Thanks for having me on. It was great to talk to both of you. And thank you, Zachary, of course, for your uh, inspiring and really imaginative poem, bringing us to the picket lines where we we all could learn a lot. Uh, and, and thank you for doing that, Zachary. Thank you most of all to our loyal listeners for joining us for this episode of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts ITS Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harris Codini. Stay tuned for a new episode every week. You can find This Is Democracy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. See you next time.